Welcome once again to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast. This podcast delivers current theory, research, and practice in support of effective literacy instruction. I'm your host, Matt Soroka, recording from the beautiful campus of Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. One of the reasons I really enjoy doing this podcast, actually kind of the only reason (laughs) or the primary reason I enjoy doing this podcast is I get to talk to experts in the field of literacy about all the interesting work that is happening in these various fields of literacy. I'm just so impressed um, and I just enjoy these conversations so much uh, about all the good work that's being done in the field by dedicated researchers and teachers. And I think today's show specifically highlights the expertise and experience that is found within the Journal of Adolescent Literacy Authorship and within the field of literacy. Today, I'm speaking with doctors Cindy Greenleaf, Kathy Hinchman, and Will Brown about their article, Science Teachers Designing Text Use for Equitable Next Generation Science Instruction. And as I read their bios, I think you'll get the, the vibe that these are three really experienced uh, researchers and teachers um, in the field of literacy. Cynthia Greenleaf, Senior Research Scientist Emerita in Literacy at West Ed, is a passionate advocate for high-quality literacy education for all. Dr. Greenleaf leads collaborative design-based research supporting the ongoing development of reading apprenticeship and its inquiry-based professional learner model, model and contributes to na- national and international efforts to advance academic and disciplinary literacies. Her work to design, develop, and bring reading apprenticeship to scale has improved teaching and learning for hundreds of thousands of secondary and college students and their teachers nationally and internationally. A member of the Reading Hall of Fame and recipient of several awards and honors, Dr. Greenleaf received her doctorate in language and literacy education from the University of California, Berkeley. Kathleen Hinchman, PhD, is a literacy professor emeritus at Syracuse University. She has taught, coached, and conducted research in elementary, secondary, adult literacy and literacy teacher education settings. She has published numerous articles, chapters, and texts and served on local, state, and national literacy-related boards of directors. Her participation in the science and literacy collaborative design study stemmed from her lifelong interest in studying approaches that optimize disciplinary teachers' support of students' literacies. She can be, uh, and then finally, Willard Brown is STEM instructional coach for Envision Schools. Dr. Brown leverages his passion for literacy to support learning outcomes in STEM education and support the Envision Schools' vision for pro-Black education. Previously, Willard worked at West Ed providing read-long apprenticeship, professional development, and research disciplinary literacy and science instruction. Earlier, he taught high school science in Oakland Public Schools. His classes appear in multiple publications and instructional videos. Willard holds a PhD in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley. And what follows is my discussion about their article. Again, this article can be accessed in the show notes. You can click it and read it um, for free. Science Teachers Designing Text Use for Equitable Next Generation Science Instruction. But I'll say this before we get into our conversation, that this um, article is kind of targeted at science teachers. But our conversation, I think, is definitely for science teachers, but goes much beyond science teachers as we think about how we go about choosing the texts we choose for our classrooms, kind of what purposes they serve for ourselves and for our students. And then how do we kind of take those texts and give them to our students in ways that are approachable and engaging for our students? So a really good, important conversation. I hope you enjoy. I'm excited now to be joined on the Journal of Adolescent Literacy podcast by 
Cindy Greenleaf, Kathleen Hinchman, and Will Brown. Thank you all for joining us. I want to start by having you each kind of introduce introduce yourself a little bit and, and tell us and tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and kind of how you got interested in this article um, around literacy and science. Um, can we start with you, Cindy? Sure. I'm a literacy researcher and one of the developers of reading apprenticeship at WestEd. And um, I have always loved science. I studied biological sciences in college. And in fact, that was my alter ego, my other career that I didn't follow. Uh, But I've worked a lot with science teachers throughout my literacy career. And I'll say a little bit after um, my colleagues introduce themselves, um, I'll say more about the background of the study and why we, we conducted this work. Okay. How about you, Kathy? Um, I'm a literacy educator research also researcher also with a lifelong interest in how disciplinary teachers conceptualize reading and writing as they plan and provide instruction. In fact, it was the focus of my dissertation a really long time ago. So <laughs> I'm really interested in the reading apprenticeship work that's discipline specific. Yeah. And, and Will, what, what about you? Well, I'm a science educator, a practitioner, and my passion for my career is leveraging literacy for STEM education. So I'm a great partner in these endeavors. All right. And I got to be honest, I'm a little blown away by the amount of experience in this room. Not me, but everyone else, the amount of experience you bring uh, within the, the field of literacy is um, impressive right now. So I'm excited about this conversation. So let's get into your study. Um, well, before we get there, um, can I ask a quick question about kind of the background of the study? So kind of the premise is um, teachers find these multimodal texts that go beyond uh, what the science textbooks are offering. Um, and so I guess my question is, can we talk a little bit about the need and the purpose and significance of using these multimodal texts in addition to the science textbooks? Sure. So um, give me a little bit of time to give you the backstory, story. Sure. Um, and then we'll get there. How's that? Um, this study follows previous work that we carried out uh, during Project Ready, which was one of the study teams funded by the Department of Education's Reading for Understanding initiative. And that project, Project Ready, focused on argumentation from multiple sources and three middle and high school subjects, science, history, and literary studies. Um, In science, it's important to uh, recognize that argumentation is central to scientific practice. Um, Scientists and people studying science are putting forward explanations for phenomena Um, and using evidence to argue for the viability of that explanation. How does the explanation fit the data? How does the explanation relate to scientific principles that have been established, et cetera? Um, So in Project Ready, what we found in our baseline studies of middle and high school science classrooms, and these were classrooms of teachers who were highly regarded, we saw very little use of text Hmm. and almost no Uh, science argumentation occurring. So um, this was, you know, a five-year, six-year project. We worked with science teachers over multiple years to collaboratively design and test out several what we call text-based investigation units. Um, These were 
collections of texts inviting students to build their understanding of something like antibiotic resistant bacteria. Um, and then to develop and argue for a model or explanation of that phenomenon, whatever it happened to be. And we offered these investigation units to other teachers, along with reading apprenticeship professional development to help them know how to work with those texts in um, productive ways with students. And then uh, followed that with a scientific study, a randomized controlled trial uh, with brand new teachers. And we had very strong positive outcomes in teachers' instructional practice change and in students' learning. So we know that this approach shifts teachers' focus of instruction, and we know it increases students' knowledge of science as well as their reading comprehension. But at the end of that, Cindy, there were some other things that we wanted to learn. We wanted to learn and understand about the viability of this approach of including texts more and more into scientific and investigations and engineering challenges. We wanted open source materials so that it could be shared and disseminated to others, removing the, uh, some of the financial and equity and access roadblocks. We wanted to include the hands-on so it wasn't text-based anymore, text-rich, because the hands-on investigation and gathering data and design experiments is what makes science science. And we wanted to test whether engaging teachers in this type of work of developing and localizing their own curriculum could be a model for professional learning that was functional and we could use it with other teachers. So we had other goals that moved us beyond the project ready. So let's go back to your question about textbooks, right? Yes. Textbooks offer, they do offer information about science topics. Um, students can and do learn information from them. Teachers have always stepped past the textbooks to do hands-on science, but often that then excluded texts altogether, as Cindy alluded to a minute ago. The new standards in science, however, and reform science in general, require that students engage in scientific activity as a way of learning science. That is, it encourages students to actually do science. You're not learning about science, you're doing science and, and generating understandings from that. So our puzzle was, how do we help teachers engage students in doing science with texts of various kinds, drawing on them like scientists do? Textbooks also do, and increasingly so, offer multimodal texts like those used by scientists. These include diagrams, images, even models, sometimes online texts. They have moving models of scientific phenomena. Uh, these are sometimes overlooked, but they're great sources to draw on when, te when teaching. Beyond the textbook, multimodal texts might include photographs, videos of phenomena, as well as more dynamic texts, such as responsive data displays, simulations, arrays of data that come from other scientists' work, those kinds of things. Think about the complex data displays we saw during COVID, for example, as, as one example. Yeah, that's good. And because these are the types of texts that scientists are dealing with and working with on a daily basis. And I, one of the reasons I really, I really liked your article, I liked it for a lot of reasons, but you guys, you, you talk about text selection and I appreciate what Will mentioned about the open sources so other teachers can, can use them as well. But then um, as, uh, as you guys mentioned, you also talk about how teachers can use the text, right? Because one thing to put the text in the teacher's hands, it's another thing. To, to help them with how can I use these texts 
because often uh, these texts aren't aren't geared towards seniors or geared towards other scientists or, or someone else. Um, before we get too deep in the weeds, though, I'm, I'm just I'm itching to get there. Uh, is there anything else that we should know about your study uh, before we get into a more detailed discussion? Um, well, I don't know if you want us to jump into methods and, and yeah, let, 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 yeah, let's talk about kind of when and where and who and, and those method methods questions. Okay. The, um, I do think that, um, there's an additional component and maybe will, you can speak to this, um, before we get there to methods Okay. about these text rich, what we call text rich investigation materials that, and that is the multiple texts. So, um, yeah, Will, you want to jump in and talk about that a little bit? Hmm. I, I think so, just for a moment. <laughs> when we are trying to bring this text into an investigation or design unit, there's a lot of reasons for engaging students, not just in one text. One text doesn't really um, doesn't really bring out the the work that a scientist does when they're doing um, accessing text to support support investigation or design. Where you might be looking at schematic and also pulling information from uh, the context of like why I'd want to do this. So it was important to not just have one more text or one text, although that's a starting spot for. Uh, for teachers, but our teacher's ambition was to have um, an array of texts that could grow in complexity over time and also uh, help with the investigation of the phenomena, also build students' sense of the range of the different types of texts that they're going to encounter in science. So all those things added to the complexity of the task that we are asking teachers to engage in. Right. Yeah. And if we really want students to actually read those, the trick is also that we need to make sure that the task that they're being asked to do relies on the information or relies on what needs to be gleaned from those texts. So it, textbooks are not packaged like that. Even if they have many uh, resources that are useful, they simply aren't packaged to, to focus on and support investigation or design. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. No, I, I appreciate that that clarification and um, yeah, that uh, elaborating on that. And that makes sense too, right? Because you have your, like the traditional written text, right? But then you can also supplement that with a diagram or a chart or these, these other aspects that kind of can show that data in a different way that is purposeful and meaningful. All right, let, let's get to the methods. Uh, can, can someone talk about kind of the, the method behind your study? Well, I'll start and then Will and Kathy can join in. Um, okay in the chorus here. Um, this was what we reported in the JAL um, paper is collaborative design research. And we know that design research focuses on implementation of say a method or a, um, a theory in practice, right? But collaborative design research really uh, steps that up to honor the wisdom, experience, and knowledge that teachers bring to the table. That counts. And really importantly, in the circumstances of their teaching, their students, their curricula, their district mandates, et cetera, those parameters shape 
and inform the work. Um, so that's kind of a definitional statement about the collaborative design research that we do. Um, this particular study was funded by the Hewlett Foundation, but it was linked to a large dissemination grant from the Department of Education that was focused on uh, supporting the effective teaching of disciplinary inquiry. So the idea was to do this close-in design work in tandem with this broader dissemination grant. And we'll mention some of the things we still wanted to do, incorporating hands-on investigation and design pieces of science and engineering, making the resulting units open source so they could be shared with other teachers. Um, so we supported middle and high school science teachers in Michigan and California who had participated in Project Ready or other reading apprenticeship training to develop the open source science units that could be shared with others. And, and that's important because we were starting with teachers who already understood, had, had done groundwork in uh, supporting literacy in science. So they were building on um, the knowledge and skills they already had. Um, and as a part of sort of beginning this work with them, we engaged the teachers in carrying out their own text-rich investigations as part of the professional learning that we were doing together um, so they could get a feel for what it was like to really dig in um, in a text-rich text set, you know, multimodal text set to learn and, and uh, think carefully about and put forward a model or an explanation of a particular science idea. Um, and that was in order to prepare them to value and design similar units of studies, study for their own students. Yeah. We learned that this was something very impactful during our previous studies. Yeah, that's good. And I'll let Will and Kathy add on a second. I just want to acknowledge that this collaborative design, I love it so much because I think one of the problems sometimes when, you know, you you you, you try to do PD with teachers or something and, and you try to bring down from the top, here's how we're doing things, not acknowledging all the expertise that exists within that teacher field. And so bringing in that expertise um, and combining it with kind of what we know, I think is is really effective and, and, the, and, the, and the way to go. And it kind of mirror, and it kind of brings together that theory and practice stuff. Um, which is so good and so important. Um, Will, did you want to add to that? Yeah, we were in the enviable position of having had the Project Ready study to inform how do we do this work with teachers. And mm. some of the things that we brought out of it was the need to develop teacher-facing design principles that they could use as guidance. And so we developed a set of design principles for text-rich investigations that could be um, helps for them to get started also knew that if teachers got to choose what domain or phenomena they wanted to work on, that would give them a lot of investment. And so we formed grade level or domain-based groups for the teachers to interact. And yeah, they interacted with everyone in the small group because it wasn't a huge design group, but they had um, close-in support with um, interest groups. A lot of the things that I did to facilitate those sessions, moving back and before the um, back and forth between those small groups, community meetings, check-ins, a lot of those things help them uh, sort of break that huge task down into small steps and, mm -hmm. and really feel progress along the way because 
we were constantly what what what's moving you forward and sharing that advice and what are the hurdles you're facing and seeing if we couldn't do something to support it. I ended up doing a lot of work behind the scenes and with teachers individually in supporting their um, search for text and also for thinking about how to how to plan for students handling the challenges that the text offers. So a lot of mentoring as well as group support. Yeah, I like that idea. So, uh, oh, go, 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 go ahead, Kathy. No, no. So all that work produced data, right? Produced mm-hmm. text from things that teachers said, the way we ended up supporting them, et cetera, right? So our data for the study that was reported in JAL included all the observations of teachers' professional learning and collaborative planning decision, planning sessions, their units of study, which were really robust, and interviews with several to talk about how they made decisions when they planned. Um, Cindy and I observed and interviewed the teachers, and then all the all of us analyzed their units. We were interested in the decisions teachers were making about what text to use to include in their units and why, and also how they planned to support students. Like, how did they talk about this? Since they were collaborating with each other, they made it surfaced a lot of their reasoning, which often doesn't appear when teachers are planning by themselves, too. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, I Again, I, I reiterate, I appreciate so much how you acknowledge the expertise that the teachers bring. Even the idea of choice, can I say, the, we harp a lot in, I think, um, in preparing teachers about the importance of student choice. Sometimes you don't talk enough about teacher's choice and how um, a teacher having choice can make them feel uh, more control of their classroom, their agency, uh, and make them get more kind of engagement and enjoyment out of teaching when they have elements of choice to kind of pursue things that they're interested in. So I like that a lot. Let's get into your findings. Uh, So we're going to look at them kind of, I'm breaking it down like you did in your article um, and just a reminder for listeners that the article is linked in the show notes. So I would encourage them to go ahead and, and if you haven't yet, read the article. Um, the the first finding is around text selection. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what are the challenges around finding a quality science text and kind of what are teachers looking for in these multimodal science texts? Well, I'll jump in. As I was talking about before, teachers weren't simply looking for one text. I'm going to add one text to um, an investigation, but multiple possible texts that could be used with hands-on work to explore scientific phenomena and to test an engineering challenge. Our teachers were really curious about whether the text would actually undermine the investigation. They were curious about whether it'd give too much of the answer away or or too little uh, for it. So, and they were very excited about what one small text could add or a few texts could add together. And they were concerned that the students will still be doing that lift of putting together the information and having discovery. So I think our teachers, although they leaned into literacy, they were very thoughtful and considerate about their students actually doing the science work and discovering and doing the design work and doing the challenging work. So finding texts that gave enough information, but not too much, Mm. and also paired with others so that they would practice pulling information from a written text and a data table and a schematic that had to work together because science do that intertextual type of work all the time. So they were mindful of that and all all of that being phenomena and grade level appropriate. 
Uh, yeah. Very complex. Yeah, Sorry. it is very complex. I, I think about other researchers who have looked at the considerateness of texts and kind of how textbooks by design are very considerate of the reader. But then when you move outside the textbook into these open source materials, they're, 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 they're not going to be as considerate <laughs> to the reader. And finding that right balance of, because so many of the articles I would imagine um, assume a high level of background knowledge that the students may or may not have. So finding that Goldilocks type text that, that yeah, that's hard enough, everything, but yeah. Hard enough, but not too hard and really offers uh, worthwhile content. One of the challenges is a lot of the resources teachers try to their first places, like let's look up something online. And they would run into something they called junk food text. Maybe has some relevant information in it, has some disinformation, incorrect information mm -hmm. in it. So they had a lot of, or they couldn't track the author or whether it's really open source. And there is these collections that teachers mm -hmm. would find. And when we dug down, we'd find it was proprietary work copied out of a textbook, pasted online. So mm -hmm. that was a lot of work. And yeah, if, if finding a right text isn't hard enough, let's throw in all those other factors as well. Yeah, and then they wanted it to be locally relevant. And so they, they held themselves to really high ambitions, which is amazing, considering they're teaching full-time and then teaching full-time in COVID. We, we can't say enough about what, what we think the teachers did and, and their brilliance. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's finding the text and searching for the text. Uh, in terms of the, kind of the next finding the roles of text, um, can we unpack kind of the different ways teachers would use these texts and in, in ways that I'm curious, again, going back to the textbook, in ways that kind of would they enhance what the textbook was talking about or would this be more localized than what the textbook was talking about? Um, I, I'm still thinking about the relationship between the textbook and maybe some of these other texts you're finding. Uh, but can we talk a little bit about the roles that these texts were serving for, for teachers and students? So one of the types of texts um, that teachers often use was existing data, such as a graph or a table. Take, for example, um, you're studying something about climate change, and you want to do that by studying changes in population of um, deer in an area, right? And so you get tables and you look for your local area. So that starts to localize the concern a little bit more. Um, those kinds of things can't appear in textbooks because textbooks are really successful if they sell to a national audience. So a way to take a phenomenon, think about, so what is its impact on the environment in our local community? And what are the texts that tell us about that impact um, is a way, is one way the teachers would find data. Um, or, to, or text to use in the classroom. Another one, um, teachers would try to find varied text to learn about the context of a phenomena. They expose students to varying types of text that um, teachers use, like charts, graphs, photographs, prose. And then using the multiple texts, like planning, planning purposeful use of those multiple texts um, really gave the students multiple entry points for getting curious, for arousing their interest, for saying, oh, I know something about that. So for making connection to the conclusions they're starting to draw about the phenomenon, the way it worked. Um, texts also included using other people's words. So like, interviewing scientists who'd already engaged in investigations related to the phenomena, 
um, and lo like local scientists who study the water supply. Teachers were especially interested in showing diverse scientists doing the work of science. We know that um, science, the realm, is often occupied by white males. So it's mm -hmm. finding females, finding scientists of color, so that students could begin to imagine themselves, perhaps, as becoming scientists in the future. Um, still, other texts drew on students' interests, knowledge, experiences, um, shaping so that the teachers could shape their study around local expressions of phenomena. So something like climate change, you could study the charts and graphs related to the wildfires in California, which one of the teachers actually did. Still other texts explain well-developed scientific theory or principles. So it delivered content, but the teachers were really careful about excerpting the segment of the text that came in closest to explaining scientific theory or principles, um, and maybe even finding more than one text so students mm. could read the two texts against each other to, to understand those explanations and then come up with their own explanations for the text. Um, yeah. So I mean, good list. Imagine. <laughs> that's a pretty good list, yeah. Yeah, it's a mm -hmm. great list. And, and um, if you pair that up with a textbook, back to the textbook idea. Mm -hmm. um, the function of textbooks is to deliver content. All of those other functions yeah. that Kathy just went through, you yeah. know, all of those text types are kind of le left out of that picture if we're only using textbooks. Right, because the textbook might talk about climate change, but as Kathy pointed out, it's been possible to talk about climate change impact on every single community in the world, right? So this offers this kind of an opportunity for teachers to kind of fill in that gap on how it's impacting their community. Um, and also, I didn't even think about the diversity of voices represented. That's such a great point that our, our textbook, you're not going to see that diverse voices that are in this field talking about these issues. But when you go out and find your own text that opens, you're, you're then have that opportunity to seek out and pursue those diverse voices, those new, those new voices, which is a fantastic point. That's great. Well, and often the authorship of texts is kind of disguised in there. So we really mm. can't make judgments about the perspectives that are represented in there, um, which is an interesting feature of science texts that sell nationally. Yeah, that is interesting. You might have some editors, right, listed at the beginning, but then you don't know who's written what, who's edited what parts and all that. Yeah. Well, in the textbooks, uh, states that have statewide textbook adoption drive an awful lot of the work of textbooks per se. So, um, yeah, it's important to think about that as they're written for marketing, right? Right. Yeah. All right. So let's get to your third finding. You talk about scaffolding, equitable participation and learning. Um, so I find this really interesting um, where, again, this goes back to the point you guys made in the opening. We're not just giving them these maybe more diverse voices, these more localized texts. We're not just giving them these texts. We're also helping them, scaffolding them, scaffolding the text to meet the individual needs of our students. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about kind of what that looks like and um, in what ways the teachers scaffold these texts? Yeah, well, I'll jump in and then um, I'm sure that um, Will can uh, deepen <laughs> this look. But um, I wanted to start out by acknowledging that there are <clears throat> 
open source science materials, collections of the kind that um, we've been talking about, increasingly available for investigation and design mm -hmm. in order to meet the new science standards. <clears throat> and these may, in fact, include these varied type of texts that we've been talking about. Um, but these materials do not offer much guidance for teachers about how you support students to actually dig in and make sense of these texts. Right. Um, and so some of our teachers who worked with units that were um, coming out, uh, that were already developed, described how they had to alter the units to make time for students to dig into the text. They had to select portions of the text to dwell on rather than just assigning the reading and hoping for the best, which is what it seemed like it was being advised, right? Um, and that relates to what I think is one of the most important findings of our study, and that is what seemed to drive all of the teacher decision-making throughout the study, even and maybe even especially during the pandemic when emergency online teaching interrupted instruction as usual, teachers were especially concerned about equity. So by equity, I am including equity of student access to the learning activities, access to the content of the text that teachers were choosing to use, equity of student participation in the learning, so equity of engagement, and equity of student voice in meaning-making and discussions. What students were making of the phenomena, including the texts that were parts of these units, was at the very center of teaching and planning. I want to jump in here, building on this focus of how these teachers, once they had the text, how they worked to support that equity. Certainly the choice of the text, as we've talked about before, um, getting topics that resonate for students or local or or shortening them so that they uh, are expending their their effort, their struggle uh, in the most productive way possible. Uh, teachers went beyond that. They analyzed the text by closely reading and understanding the knowledge that it took to read this text or the mental moves that you had to make as a reader to be able to actually do the disciplinary task with the text and then thought about how they could support students to do that and not about how they could run around it and avoid doing it. Uh, we've talked about giving students time in class and that's huge because that's the one most limited factor that's on every teacher's mind. What am I doing with this class time? It's, it's, it's incredibly precious. So giving students time to read text, talk about text, read the text again, and engage in discussions and back and forth revision of their own understanding of the text, as well as then, what am I going to do with this text for this engineering task? What am I going to do with this text to help the support? We reread, scientists reread texts a lot. We grapple and struggle with it, uh, even the text that we write, small bits of it. So it's very realistic to do this, but it, it costs a lot of time. In engineering, the similar analogy is how many revisions revisions of this engineering cycle am I going to do? Uh, in real life, we would do many. In school, it's hard to get more than two. Then mediating those challenges when they come up. How, do you answer something for a student? Do you 
turn students back to a text, you turn them to another text, you give them time to discuss. There's a lot of different tools in the toolbox, but being able to write in which tools they might use with their own students and to make a guide for the teachers who would be using them, which tools you might use when was a lot of work and they were very intentional about it. And then finally, like you can model how you do that work yourself when challenges and problems come up. Not so that students think your thoughts after them, but that they see the struggle and they do their own struggle their own way and then sharing those out in a community to build build a toolkit and transfer skills that you can move forward. Our teachers put a lot of work into thinking this through. Well, and they also spend enough time close close in with the students during those mediating sessions. Kids would read text and teachers would check in with individual students. Even when they were teaching online, they figured out ways to do that. Mm-hmm. As students or even before students went into small groups to do group problem solving around understanding a text together, just to make sure people had confidence in their interpretations and their own problem solving um, and bringing their ideas to the table. It was pretty remarkable to hear about the amount of work they did and how well they knew their students as a mm. result of that kind of close consultation on a regular, regular basis. Yeah, well, to that point, Kathy, that's why it's so important not just to choose the right text, right, but to know your students and know how to kind of meet the needs of your students within that text. And Cindy mentioned that th- th- this idea of uh, assign the reading and hope for the best. And Will echoed a similar response where you kind of run around and avoid it. I saw that all the time. I think a popular way that, well, when I first started teaching high school English teacher here for 14 years, what was popular was, well, we'll just decrease the lexile of tougher text, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't need to deal with that screams running and avoided, right? <laughs> like we, we can't handle it. So we'll just decrease the lexile for some of our students um, as opposed to giving them kind of the, the skills to handle it. And your point about, Will, about taking time is so, such an important reminder. I think of it, again, through the English teacher lens of, of what we would ask our students to do with writing, right? I spend, I mean, I don't know how, how many hours you guys spend on this article collaborating and writing this article, but we ask kids to sit down from fi- in 50 minutes and write this two-page essay and expect it to be really good. Um, and that's just not how writing works for writers. It's not how reading works for scientists or really for anyone, if we're being honest here. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I like that idea of of how do how do you read an article? What, what what do we as teachers do when we get to a point where we don't understand something? Um, and sometimes we re- we reread it. Sometimes we talk it through. Sometimes it takes us an hour to read a short little a short little excerpt, right? And that's that's part of the process. Uh, I really like that. It's why our teachers were so concerned that they not give junk food texts to the students, but that the phenomena they were investigating was not only relevant to students, but moving them really into the field so they had access to the most important knowledge. And yes, provides a lot of guidance for that. So that it was worth the struggle in what students would come out from it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. If you're going to be spending this time, right, you're not going to be doing with busy work or junk texts as you referred to. Them. Yeah, you're, you're going to be making sure you're choosing careful text and you're, and you're yeah, uh, if you're going to uh, input all this time uh, and effort into it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I have a couple other questions I want to get into before kind of we wrap this up. Some some questions that I wasn't, I didn't know if we have time for, but just things I'm curious about. 
Um, I want, I'm going to go a little, I, I know I guys sent you some of these questions. I'm going to go a little bit out of order. I'm going to start with the last one, actually. Um, I'm just, I know your study focused on the experience of teachers and teachers choosing texts. And I think that's so important and how teachers scaffold a text. I'm just curious in the interviews, if you ever had any conversations around, well, I think doing this stuff will increase engagement as you increase the authenticity of the text, as you kind of, um, you know, it just opens itself for, for more engagement outside of just the textbook, all these multimodal texts. Did you find that true? Like, did when you're talking to teachers, did it seem like students were um, more engaged in some of these other texts that they were using? Um, over time, I it, not necessarily this study in particular, or only okay. this study. Um, okay. I we've I, I think Will and Kathy can both um, affirm that. Uh, Teachers are surprised um, when they start actually supporting students to grapple with really worthy and complex texts. They're often surprised that the engagement goes up. Um, so, Will, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can say a lot more about that. But, but in fact, um, these teachers did talk a lot about engagement. They also talked about challenges to engagement that occurred during COVID and how they worked hard to uh, address those challenges. But maybe, um, maybe, Will, do you want to add more yeah. uh, about the whole engagement with text piece in the sciences? Because you've, you've built your career around that. <laughs> and, and Will, I'll, I'll let you talk, but I think the, the COVID piece is another kind of separate piece to engagement that I think all teachers were struggling right. with. I was teaching high school at that point. Engagement was a challenge on its own. But when you're talking about these texts, Will, it, it's kind of implied that we're not, like we're talking about challenge in text too, right? Rigorous texts that students need the support while still being engaging. For a teacher, while we're engaging students, the, when you think about what the markers of engagement are, when they start asking authentic questions, when they mm. dig back into the text to figure something out for their design challenge, couple of the middle school teachers used a launch unit where they used teleferics powered by balloons. And they were talking about how the design improvement was so much more profound once they started students, uh, supporting students to closely read and include some of these texts about force in motion. They worried that it would undermine the investigation where it really amplified it. So their measures of student engagement were in the excitement around the redesign, that the redesign was now based on both the material evidence and the reasoning and principles, scientific principles, which when you do argumentation is that it's, you can get a claim, that's that's a low-hanging fruit. Getting to use evidence is kind of a medium-hanging medium fruit. Mm -hmm. The highest ones is when students talk about the reasoning that connects the two. And they were seeing more of both the evidence from the experiment and the reasoning that they were pulling from the short articles that they were um, engaging students in reading and with their models and diagrams. So there's a lot of different measures that the yeah. teachers had for the engagement, the talk in the moment, and the longer term outcomes of the project that our teachers got quite excited about. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I love that when they start asking authentic questions, you know, they're engaged. It's true. I mean, and, and teachers can tell, right, when they're giving the kind of teacher responses or they're just saying what they want me 
or what I have said before, just kind of reiterating back to me, as opposed to really making authentic kind of discussions, authentic question points. Yeah, that's very true. Um, uh, that's interesting. All right. So there's a related yeah, thing I just want to add. Um, Please. I can't help myself, but one of the <laughs> things that took off during close reading was annotation of text. And the mm. annotation was often driven by a recipe where you had to, you know, do, uh, write three questions in the margin or, you know, circle unknown words or whatever. And in reading apprenticeship, we've always done what we call talking to the text, mm-hmm. which is, um, frequently misunderstood as that sort of annotation. In fact, it is this authentic dialogue between reader and text that, um, so a marker of engagement, I loved what you just said, um, uh, Will, about, you know, what what does engagement look like? Um, A marker of engagement is when you see students actually um, emoting or uh, writing something that is clearly uh, their own set of words rather than extracting or repeating the words that are in the text. You hear them transforming words into meaning for themselves by reading those margin notes that they're writing. That's what engagement looks like when it's annotation, right? So there are all kinds of things that teachers are looking for and wanting to increase and helping students know that they really mean it. They really value students' voices, students' thoughts, Mm. right? So it's that. Yep. 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 That's (laughs) the annotation text is a great example because that's always a tricky one, right? Like I want you to talk to the text in a authentic way three times, (laughs) something (laughs) like that, right? Where you add that quantifiable thing to it and just tugs away at that authenticity of it. Um, and you can tell, right, in the margins right. by the way they write and what they write. If they're really into it or if they're just kind of trying to get their points or something. Um, that's a great point. Um, so kind of as we kind of wrap up here, so given your study, uh, and and I don't want to just limit, you guys have a lot of experience in this in, in, in this field and with this project and similar projects. Um, so I'll broaden it out. So kind of um, given this study, but also your, your previous work, what advice would you offer to science teachers specifically um, in terms of how they're going about selecting texts and teaching these texts? I think it's great if you could start with a unit that already provides an investigation or a design challenge that's already existent. That's huge. If you do that, then you could maybe just look for one text. And I know hmm. that we didn't talk, we talked about multiple texts, but as far as your own learning curve and it will do no harm. Just add one more text. Uh, you could, uh, secondly, look for the texts that are in the unit that you haven't been using and supporting students to really use for their own knowledge building and for the investigation and ramp up the supports on the existing texts in the unit. Those are really low-hanging fruits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's really great if you use you know, open source text. That's what I'm going to advocate for. I, yeah. not, no judgments on teachers who grab whatever they grab. Um, it's great for them to use fair use articles from their local newspapers, helps localize it. And then maybe helping students like evaluate what are these sources? How reliable are they? That's a great 21st century skill. So all of those are, are first steps that you can make and ways to start small that build together and you'll never have to like walk back from. Go from one text to a couple texts that are paired together. Yeah. 
Right. But teachers really need to think about the challenges it introduces and how to use student to student collaboration and their consultations as they move around the room, mediating students' understandings to um, help them through the puzzling around the text without telling them what the text is about. Texts are about, right? So really think about what's it going to contribute to this unit of study that I'm already engaged in. Right. And I'd, I'd just only add to that, you know, one really um, good starting point is to look to university or government websites for authentic and reliable texts that are connected to the phenomenon um, that you're trying to teach. Um, so if you've got a topic looking um, for government websites or, or university websites will at least get you something that you can have some confidence in. And often, um, one, there are authors for those pieces and um, they come in multiple modalities. So there's often uh, data sets to use, for example. Um, and then what Kathy just said reminded me of how important it is for teachers to actually work together. Um, mm. So rather than making this a singular enterprise that you are the lone wolf trying to figure out how to um, carry out all of this work on your own, working together in your department to divide the work, increase the depth of units, um, problem solve when things don't go as planned. Uh, think about how Work in sixth grade relates to the work that students are going to be doing in seventh grade. Uh, that that seems really um, viable as a way of of uh, not making yourself go crazy, and and see if there are local scientists who would be willing to collaborate as well. Yeah, I think that's um, that's great advice. Yeah, Kathy, go ahead. Well, the, and the collaboration reminds me that when you teach alone in a classroom, it's really easy to start thinking in certain ways about your content as it's mediated by students. When you collaborate with other teachers, you can really work together to set to, to check yourself on what what's the essence of the phenomena that we need to construct this unit around. It's like it's one of the most important things that we observe teachers doing every time they met together was really trying to get to the crux of the phenomena and how best mm. to sequence activities and then resequence activities if they needed to after they watched students doing some something along the way. But those collaborations really is a it's it provides a good checking space for for staying true to what you're what you're trying to teach. Yeah, that makes sense. And then to Will's point, but starting with a single text if everyone in the department starts with a single text, right, then, then all of a sudden you get a, a, a group of texts and you can um, provide a great starting point. Um, so, yeah, I think collaboration with students you mentioned and, and with teachers, um, absolutely, as they go on the hunt for these articles and enhancing these units of inquiry, um, that's great advice. Does your, this, your article focuses on science, um, but do you think the kind of the principles here about um, finding supplemental texts, multimodal texts, and um, scaffolding those texts. I know it'll look different in the different d d disciplines, but do you guys think your work here can be applied to English classrooms and history and math? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I, I think that's the work that we started out with in Project Ready and continued with the supporting effective disciplinary um, inquiry, um, teaching of disciplinary inquiry. Um, those those grants were all about that. I think inquiry with text is a part of disciplinary work in in any domain. It certainly is um, in history and social studies and the. Uh, the new C3 standards for the social studies foreground the centrality of active inquiry in learning in the, in across all of the social studies. Literary study, of course, involves the study of a text and an inquiry into the ways that literary pieces are constructed or designed by authors. Um, if you think about uh, problem solving and design work that's done in career tech ed and mathematics, those lend themselves to similar unit design and um, and the work that these teachers were doing, which was about simultaneously advancing literacy and content learning. Mm -hmm. So I would say in all disciplines, texts come in many forms and representation systems, and they all present learners with comprehension challenges. And wherever uh, learning tasks can take the form of inquiry and problem solving, and where texts are intentionally vital to those inquiries and solutions, our study and the design work that teachers did with us um, have direct applications. Yeah. Good. I, I And I, I think our listeners can, I know I did, I could see all those connections happening all the time through kind of every conversation. Like I mentioned, I can't help but see everything through an English lens just because of my background, but um, I, I'm sure whatever our listeners' background is, they were seeing all those connections. Um, so what's next? Now, I, I want to ask this question in terms of maybe you individually or as a field, feel, feel free to take it either way, you as an individual or as a field, kind of what, where do we go from here? What's next in the field of literacy and and science education? Or what's next for you individually, if you want to, you want to think of it from that realm? Uh, We're kind of thinking that right now there's there are numbers of um, groups writing units to address next-gen science standards. Um, increasingly, they're including text with those standards. So the more we can get work out there, about the kinds of scaffolding. We focused this time on um, building models about phenomena, but there are other aspects of their of, of kids' involvement in investigations and engineering that other researchers might be interested in focusing on. But we could also dream of instructional support materials that are presented to teachers that let them help them find local applications and the texts that represent those applications, along with explaining, um, reminding them of what's important to study and the phenomena, but also how to invite students in mm -hmm. on those studies, including those texts too. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. Will, Cindy, anything to add there? Now, I think that's good for me, Will. Yeah, I just want to underscore, when we think about supporting our students' independence and agency and their own self-determination, how supporting, and I'm going to reference someone else's work just really to, to, to give the um, credit for it, uh, how important it is to do this work of having students have experience with the text of a discipline to be able to access it. 
but it has another mm-hmm. factor too, and it shifts the teacher out from the role as the holder of knowledge and expertise. Uh, and given the aspiration for equity in our classroom and our students to start seeing themselves as the future engineers and scientists and doctors, then it's really important that we do this work so that they see that they can access that information. I love how Steve Norris said it, expecting students to accept what a teacher says is true is poor currency for their futures. How can we support students to develop their own deep understandings and convictions from doing the work of inquiry including inquiry into the credibility of sciences sources rather than being told what to believe this is the challenge for our time so as more and more of the students are accessing texts the teacher can step back from intervening and we can actually kind of achieve some of the goal that was that Steve Norris was talking about so i think it it it's not just about ngss for the science but it's also about equity and right now i think that's a huge issue in our education system. Who gets to become a scientist? Who gets to become an engineer? Who gets to have access to these type of learning units? And our yeah. teachers were working on it with us. That's very well said, Will. And that's a good good note to end on. Sydney Greenleaf, Kathy Hinchman, Will Brown, thank you so much for spending the time and, and talking with me about these issues. Thank you. Thank fun. you for the invitation. Thank you.